0: An
1: organization called Freedom House, which focuses on issues uh, of freedom, democracy, human rights around the world. Each year, Freedom House prepares a report, Freedom in the World, it's called, and it, it scores and ranks each country. The United States is a country that has seen its score slides. The most recent Freedom in the World report notes that the U.S. is a federal republic whose people benefit from a vibrant political system and a strong rule of law tradition. However, in recent years, its democratic institutions have suffered erosion, as reflected in rising political polarization and extremism, partisan pressure on the electoral process, bias and dysfunction in the criminal justice system, as well as harmful policies on immigration and asylum seekers. So there's something real that's been happening in the United States, a troubling trend. Uh, So why is that happening? To what extent is American democracy being eroded? How worried should we as Canadians be, not just about what's happening next door to us, but whether it could happen here. Well, all of this is explored in an important new book that's called Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. Its author, Rob Goodman, is an assistant professor of politics and public administration at Toronto Metropolitan University, previously worked as a speechwriter in the U.S. House and Senate. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Rob, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: It's interesting, I would imagine, for you, almost uh, caught in between uh, both countries uh, as, as you know, someone who's no longer American, maybe not, not fully Canadian. Are you kind of approaching this as one or the other or kind of from above? Uh, how do you describe your perspective?
2: Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that when I wrote this book, I wrote it because it was really personal for me. Uh, It was really personal because I I lived in the U.S. and watched the developments you just talked about in your great intro to this. Uh, I I watched uh, an authoritarian movement, which I I think we shouldn't mince words about, an authoritarian movement, uh, bring the U.S. to the brink of a coup uh, for the first time in living memory. Um, And it hurt as someone who grows up uh, in the U.S., and is taught in school and takes civics classes, which I don't think they even do anymore, Um, and is taught that the U.S. is a strong, healthy, functioning democracy and a model for democracies all over the world, Um, it's really painful to see that called into question. But Mm -hmm. but the other reason that this is personal for me is that, uh, as you said, um, I I live here in Canada now. Um, My wife and I are raising three daughters in Toronto. It's our uh, home for the foreseeable future. Um, And the reason the impact of American democratic dysfunction is personal to me as someone who's living in Canada is because I really hope Canadians will wake up about the impact that American dysfunction could potentially have on our politics, our, our stability, our, our way of life here, not just as a thing we watch on the news, not just as a kind of dumpster fire that gets gawked at occasionally, but as something with with real measurable consequences. So I, I certainly did have to choose how to write this book. And you, you've heard me use the word we a couple of times. Uh, you know, A phrase that I used in the very beginning of the book, uh, was the aspirational we. Um, When I was thinking about whether I was going to write this book in the third person or the first person, I decided that I had to use we because it really expresses the sense that I have skin in the game. It really expresses the sense that what happens here in Canadian politics is not just an academic issue for me. It's not just a thing I read about in the news. It's about the kind of future my kids are going to have. Uh, so it's extremely personal to me. And even if I'm not entirely a Canadian yet, because as a lot of people have immigrated, I'm in the process of becoming part of a new place. That's the standpoint from which I want to take up these questions, because that's the standpoint that is the most personal to me.
1: Let's talk about, and you referred to, to what you see as a movement of the U.S. I mean, at some level, we are dealing with uh, an individual, a, a selfish and immature individual who's, whose ego just couldn't handle a public acknowledgement that he'd lost an election, but I, I think from that sprang something much more sinister. Now we are seeing situations where all of this is being investigated. Individuals are now facing charges, including the former president himself. To what extent is there optimism in that individuals are being held to account for this?
2: Well, I think it's certainly better than the alternative, and I, I'm glad. That uh, Donald Trump and the people who uh, worked with him uh, to attempt to overturn the 2020 election are being held to account. Uh, Recently, we've seen them uh, being held to account in the state of Georgia. We've seen federal indictments come down against Donald Trump. Uh, And I think this is all to the good. My concern here is a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, I think it's it's certainly right to focus on Trump as a source of democratic instability in the U.S., but the problem goes way, way beyond him. And I think that the scariest thing that I see is the fact that the more Trump gets indicted, the better he seems to do in those Republican primaries. And I think there's a lesson there. I, I think the lesson for me is not just that this is going to go away when Donald Trump finally leaves the scene, whether that's because he loses an election or, or goes to jail or just stops being active in politics or, or one day he's going to be too old for this. Um what I'm really concerned about is why a politician who calls into question uh, the, the fairness of American elections, um, who deliberately attempts to disenfranchise voters, especially voters of color, uh, I'm really concerned with how it became possible that someone who held those views and acted in such a way uh, reached the heights of power, just like a lot of Americans are concerned. And I don't think we can just chalk it up to one person. So while I think the prosecutions and the holding to account uh, of Trump and his conspirators are good news from the standpoint of democracy um there, there's some that i think there's a little bit of a too little too late it's treating the symptom rather than the underlying cause
1: right and and so what caused this or to put it in another way i mean yes i think a lot of this is about one individual but absent that individual if donald trump had decided not to run for president in the first place is that to say that none of this would be happening right is it is it about more than than just
2: him yeah I think it is about more than just him and and who knows what had happened if if he hadn't taken that ride down the escalator in two thousand fifteen would there have been another demagogue to take his place or not I and mean, that's really hard to say and maybe even impossible to say, but I do think that when Trump talks about uh, the fact that the election was stolen from him and his supporters, he's drawing on some really deep currents of American history and american politics i'm I'm really struck by something he said at, at the rally that launched the uh, January sixth riot um when he described his supporters as the real people, you're the people who built this country, you're not the people who are tearing it down. And that itself is not an idea that Trump invented. This idea that certain kinds of people by virtue of their identity or where they live or what their beliefs are, what their politics are, are somehow more authentic, more real, more viable as carriers of democracy. Uh, This idea is a recipe for disenfranchisement because once you've made the claim that certain kinds of people in your country count more than other people, uh, than any election that they lose is stolen by definition. Uh, it's impossible for the quote-unquote real people to really lose an election because they ought to be able to dictate the fate of the country. So the fact that Trump can draw on these really long traditions of opposition to democracy in the U.S., and especially opposition to multiracial democracy, uh, which in the U.S. Is, is not that old, which really only goes back to the Voting Rights Act in, in 1965. Uh, as I've learned more about U.S. history, and as I've gotten involved in U.S. politics, I've learned that th- this is a struggle with, with deep, deep roots in American history. And Trump is the most recent manifestation of it. But I certainly don't expect that it's going to go away when Trump goes away.
1: Right. So the fact that there, there is, are some roots in American history. Uh, so does that give Canadians any kind of solace that that's American history? Canadian history is, is not the same as American history. Canada's system of government is not the same as the American system of government. or politics are different from American politics. So, you know, those who say, look, this, this just couldn't happen here. I mean, what, what do you say to that?
2: Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I'm I'm really trying to thread the needle in this book because on the one hand, I do want Canadians to be appropriately cautious about the fact that we've seen stable or, or seemingly stable democracies all around the world deal with these challenges it means that the, the, there's no reason to expect that that Canada is fundamentally immune to the challenges driving populism and authoritarianism around the world. But I do think that there's an optimistic message to the book, and I do think that Canadian history is different, Canadian politics is different, Canadian institutions are different, and these things are sources of strength if we understand why they're sources of strength. These things can be a democratic immune system if we value them and maintain them. And I'll give a couple of examples. You I know, mean, I talked about this idea of, of the real people uh, that I think inspires Trump and a lot of populists around the world. You know, certainly there are people in Canada who have similar claims, but I, I think that claim is a lot less viable here, you know, simply because Canada has a complicated history of being a multinational country, a country that has many different stories, many different myths, many different founding stories from the indigenous nations to French Canadians and English Canadians. It's always been uh, a cobbled together country in which people have tried to accommodate and live with people that they don't see as necessarily part of their same group, but they still realize they have to accommodate. And the other thing I'll point out just quickly is that Canada has a really strong tradition of responsive parliamentary government, uh, which is generally more stable than presidential systems, delivering the kinds of public goods and the kinds of social programs that people really take as evidence that their government is working for them and is on their side. Uh, These programs, just like they have all over the world, have been eroded in recent years. But I also think that there is some living memory here in Canada that gives us some resources to say it's not too late for us to push back. So again, I want Canadians to be concerned, maybe even a little fearful about what we're seeing in the US. But I also think there's a lot of reason for hope to the extent that Canada has a fundamentally different history, story and prospects. It really still has a strong democratic immune system. And I hope Canadians will learn to value that a little bit more.
1: It is interesting, I mean, when when you look at our system as government, and I, I you know tried to do the thought experiment of how different would it be if the u s was a parliamentary democracy, how different would it be if Canada w- was a republic or you know elected a president? and uh, it's kind of impossible to know those counterfactuals. um you know, you get a situation in Canada where you can have a majority government that that maybe you know isn't isn't fully checked uh, by the opposition, a situation in the u s where you can have a republican president and a democratic house and Senate. Um, so when you look at all of those kinds of factors, I mean, how, how relevant is that in, in the trajectory of either country?
2: Well, I think there are a couple of reasons that that the parliamentary system is, is something that we're really fortunate to have. Uh, one is that it's not a system that's engineered for crisis and breakdown in the way the U.S. presidential system is. Uh, you know, there's a political scientist named Juan Linz uh, several years ago who did a famous uh, analysis of presidential systems all around the world. Uh, and he found that all around the world, presidential systems had broken down into constitutional crises or coups in every country where it had been tried, uh, except for two. Uh, One country was Chile, which just after uh, he discussed that had a right-wing coup. Um, And another country was the United States, which nearly had a right-wing coup uh, in January 6, 2021. Uh, And part of the reason is that In parliamentary systems, you're right that there certainly is potential for the abuse of majority government, and there certainly needs to be checks against that. But one thing that parliamentary systems don't have, uh, that presidential systems do, um, is this confusion about where power actually lies, this confusion about who has to have the final say, the president, the Congress, the courts. Uh, Parliamentary systems, for better or worse, and I think mostly for better, are a lot more streamlined and predictable, which means they don't run into these crises as predictably. Uh, The other thing I'd point out is that I think that there's something valuable about what parliamentary systems do with political charisma. Uh, Parliamentary leaders, uh, leaders of parties, at least traditionally, have had to rise through uh, party machines, have had to rise through uh, parliaments or houses of commons. And the kind of leaders that come out the other end aren't necessarily the sort of dominant charismatic figures that come out of presidential politics. Um, I think there are certainly exceptions to that in Canadian history. I think there is a period in which Justin Trudeau was really trying to present himself as a newly charismatic figure who was winning people over on that basis. But I I think that that in recent years, this really evaporated. But I think the presidential system, in in elevating this guy and telling him that he is the commander in chief and and having him speak to Congress every year or or multiple times a year from the position that in Canadian politics is occupied by the monarch or the monarch's representative, I I think that there are a lot of things in the presidential system that don't look good from the perspective of democracy, uh, especially the way it, it endows this person, uh, the president, whoever he is, and whatever party he represents, with uh, enormous charisma, enormous attention, and enormous uh, unilateral power that doesn't necessarily come out of parliamentary systems.
1: As for the, the right versus left question, which I think is interesting, because as, as much as maybe Trump has co-opted the Republican Party at the moment, I, I do think there are conservatives who 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 are not, you know, do not subscribe to the same sort of ideology as, as Donald Trump does. Um, you know, the, the conservatives who, who do value democracy and, and are perhaps worried about what's been happening. Maybe there's a temptation, though, on the part of progressives to say that, you know, conservatives can't be trusted. We need progressive governments to protect democracy. And perhaps that becomes, you know, even more polarizing on top of everything we have right now. Is, is this something that can unite those on the right and the left?
2: Yeah, I, I think this is actually something that I'm, I'm quite concerned about, this idea that if uh, progressive parties or parties on the left come to be identified with democracy, full stop, uh, then all of a sudden democracy isn't a rule of the game that you agree on, that both sides compete within. Uh, democracy is just one more polarizing partisan issue. Uh, and, and I think that has a lot of bad consequences for the tone of politics, but I think more seriously it has some bad consequences for how far parties can go w- when and if they gain power. So I do think that one thing that we have going for us in Canadian politics is the idea that I still think, you know, despite the significant disagreements and the significant uh, rancor and polarization and policy disagreements between left and right, I still think there's a basic baseline of agreement that this is a democracy, that the party that gets the most seats in Parliament uh, or the plurality of seats in Parliament uh, gets to govern, uh, and that we have pretty respected, neutral uh, elections administration through Elections Canada. We, we haven't gone down the road that we've seen the the uh, right go down in the u.s and again i think that that's that's great news And i I think part of the reason that that has worked is not just that canada has had a historically more stable system uh, but i think also because there have been opportunities uh, to hold would be um demagogic politicians to account so when i think about ways that ordinary people get involved in politics whether it's through uh voting uh through organizing their neighborhoods through joining unions um I think all these things are helpful because they allow ordinary people to insist to politicians on both sides that democracy is part of the system within which we play. That we agree to a set of rules of the game, and then we you know let the chips fall where they may. Um, I I think U.S. politics has gotten way beyond that, and frankly, I think the way back is going to be very difficult. Whereas in Canada, I think it's a lot easier to avoid going down that road as long as we see where it could lead us by looking at what has happened in the U.S.
1: Fascinating stuff. The book is called Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. Rob Goodman, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate the conversation.
2: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: All the best. Uh, There you go. That's uh, Rob Goodman, uh, author of the new book, Not Here. Rob's an assistant professor of politics and public administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, previously worked as a speechwriter in the U.S. House and Senate. So, you know, some roots in politics on on both sides of the border. So an interesting conversation there. Again, the book is called Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. Hey, good afternoon, friends. Welcome to this hour of the program. Thanks for being with us here on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. A lot more still to get to in this hour. We'll get to some of your phone calls and your text. Uh, Inflation rearing its head yet again in July. Uh, So maybe some of the victory laps in in, uh, June, or or on the June numbers anyway, were a little premature. We've made some progress, to be sure, but uh, there's still a ways to go in getting inflation under control, getting inflation back to the 2% target rate, which is what the Bank of Canada is trying to do. So we got to 2.8 percent on the June numbers, and and so that represented a big step. But maybe a step in in the wrong direction on the July numbers, back up to 3.3 percent. So we'll talk a bit more about some of the consequences of all of that. But first of all, Globals and Gaviola has more on the latest numbers.
3: Prices at the pumps, as well as growing mortgage costs tied to higher interest rates, drove inflation higher in July, reversing a trend of cooling inflation. In June, when we saw that rate fall to 2.8, it was like, oh, okay, great. We're we're back into the range, and we're headed towards that 2% target. And, of course, this does deviate from that trend. Mortgage costs soared by more than 30% in July. Food prices at grocery stores climbed nearly 9%, mainly because of prices for fresh fruit and baked goods. The silver lining? That was the slowest pace of food inflation in more than a year. And airfares tumbled 12.7%. Still, the cumulative effect of sticker shock is hitting household budgets. When we compare prices this year to last year, it might look like inflation have gone down, whereas for families, for households and businesses, prices are still very high. The Bank of Canada has said it takes many things into account for interest rate decisions, inflation, the job market, economic growth. That includes the impact of higher rates on household budgets and debt. For now, the majority of economists don't foresee a September rate hike. It takes between 18 and 24 months for interest rate hikes to fully ripple through the economy. And we just had another hike in July. So I think September they're not going to hike.
2: When they're looking at how they should respond to inflation, they they realize that there's some factors that they control and some that they can't. You know, and one of the factors that they don't have any influence over, at least themselves, is, you know, the global price of oils.
3: The price of oil is expected to moderate this fall. And there are signs of a cooling economy already in the labor market with a rising unemployment rate. And Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. OK, so in-
1: inflation obviously impacts us in a lot of ways. So there's the most obvious where, uh, you know, the cost of goods and services goes up. There's the consequences of tighter monetary policy and maybe most obvious from that is, you know, higher interest rates, higher mortgage rates. But it can also affect taxes and the interaction then with with various tax provisions. There's an interesting op-ed in today's Globe and Mail uh, sort of exploring some of those connections. And we've been through that debate just recently in Alberta because, of course, the Alberta government a few years ago had de-indexed taxes from inflation. And I think after Albertans realized that was a de facto tax increase. The Alberta government did reverse course. So what, how does inflation impact taxes? Uh, joining us to talk more about that is uh, Alex Laurent, Director of Research at the CD Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Uh, Alex, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
1: So th- this may be kind of an overlooked consequence uh, of inflation, but, but how does inflation impact taxes in Canada?
4: Well, there's many channels, but uh, in general, you know when you're, um, you know when your income increases and, and your income increases at the same rate as inflation as prices uh, you 're not really richer because you can't afford the exact same consumption as before your purchasing power hasn't changed because your income has increased with inflation now, if the tax systems the thresholds, the credit, the deductions, they don't increase with inflation, you will most likely pay more taxes uh, because your income has risen with inflation. So instead of having the same purchasing power after tax, you'll have less purchasing power, so you'll be poorer, but governments will be richer. Like In, in a nutshell, like that's, that's, the, uh, that's the effect. That every time you tax the inflation part of any increase in income, whatever the source of income, you're taxing not a real gain. You're taxing an illusionary yeah. gain because, you know, you're not purchasing more with that gain. Um, so every time governments do that, they, they get richer, but people get poorer. Like, uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to simplify, but in a nutshell, that's what it is.
1: Right. I mean, if I get a 5% raise, but everything I, I buy costs 5% more, I, I'm not any further ahead. But if the system recognizes and taxes me based on the the wage increase but doesn't factor in the price increase, then essentially that, that would be a tax increase for all intents and purposes.
4: Exactly. Effectively, it would be. Exactly. that. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and there's like investment income. There's all sorts of income. Like there's there's different variations to that. But it all comes back to, you know, if you're taxing the inflation part of any increase in income, like it's an illusion that you're taxing. So that's that's kind of the, the logic behind it.
1: So that that involves, and that, so that's the idea of indexing the tax brackets to inflation. That those tax brackets, the point at which you would jump up to a higher rate, those are adjusted to recognize inflation. And we, as I mentioned, we just went through that in Alberta, where the government yeah. de-indexed and then re-indexed. But what do we see with federal rates? What do we see in other provinces?
4: Well, that's the thing, like we uh because of those high inflation rates, like we we, we were curious at the City Institute, we thought, let's do a study on it let's Let's look at the tax systems and see how well they adjust to inflation. Uh, what we found is is that like uh, you know federally, Alberta, uh, you're right about those two years, but uh, you know now at least, uh, the Alberta system, the federal system, uh many provinces. You know, like many many thresholds actually do rise with inflation automatically. You know, it's it's already there, but we did find also many other instances where uh, the the thresholds or the credit the credit amount or the deduction amount they they don't rise with inflation, and sometimes they haven't risen for decades. Wow. And so uh, we, we, you know, we were not surprised, but it, it's, it's always nice to document and list those uh, instances. And, and we found some interesting ones.
1: Yes, yeah, a couple. Um, you know, for example, uh, the GST was introduced in 1991. A lot of Canadians might remember that. Um, but yeah. the uh, GST, the HST new housing rebates, uh, that's one of the instances. That's something that, that hasn't changed really since the GST's introduction.
4: Yeah, and that's that. That to us is a very interesting one, because when it was introduced, the GSD tax rebate. This is for the the new houses you buy, the new construction. You get rebated uh, the GSD that you pay on it. Uh, when that was introduced, um, the rebate it, it, it was really to be applied to the 10% of the highest end homes. You know, the most expensive homes. with was about 10% of homes that would be, that would fall uh, above the the threshold where the rebate stops. Uh, right. But now, because it's 1991, there's been inflation and home prices have increased so much, yeah. it's the opposite. It's fewer than 10% of homes that really can get the full rebate. Most, most homes now don't really uh, fall into the threshold to get the rebate, so you, you're now denying the rebate for most homes when originally, you know, it, it should be applying only to the highest end homes. So it's kind of a reversal, and that, and, and that's not not indexing um, uh, that threshold to inflation. It's it, it's, it, it's it's a bit ridiculous. Like it should be, right. at, at least we think it was. It should.
1: Yeah, I I, I would agree. By the way, I do wonder, I mean, speaking of the GST, and I don't know how you would index the GST, but does inflation, when we see in, you know, inflation in, in the price of goods, does that mean additional GST revenue for the
2: government?
4: Yeah, but it's, it's, uh, like in Latin, it's ad valorem tax. So like you, 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 you pay more, uh, but your income also increase as a so proportion of your income. You, 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 it's still the same. Like it doesn't have the same effect because there's, there's no threshold. If there's a threshold doing, uh, if there's a threshold for the GSD such as a rebate, such as something else, and that threshold does not rise with inflation, then, uh, the, it, it, it it would have a negative effect. But if there's no threshold, it's just the, the tax applying to a higher price, but you also earn more, then there's no, uh, there's no, they're, they're, you're not effectively paying more of your purchasing power.
1: Right. But, I mean, in, in terms of strictly on the govern, government revenue side, and, and maybe higher prices mean fewer purchases, maybe it's, it's a bit of a wash. But, um, you know, the, the GST applying to a higher price would theoretically maybe mean a, a bit of a boost in revenue.
4: Yeah, well yeah governments definitely get more revenues when there's inflation, but they all they should also get more expenses yeah. right but 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 you're absolutely uh this is uh <laughs> it, it, we're kind of on a different topic but you're absolutely yeah, right getting, getting a when, little when off, there's off. high inflation <laughs> you're absolutely right that governments do get Uh, more revenues and at least in the first years, it's not commensurate with the increase in their expenses. So they're getting kind of a boost from it. It, That's, yeah, this is true. Uh, but eventually the expenses should catch up to the inflation, but maybe not. But if, but, but if the tax system is not indexed to inflation, uh, then, then you get. You get to a point where governments are getting more and more revenues in real terms. They're getting more and more purchasing power from people, and uh, and they're getting richer in real terms. That's why you need the tax system to be indexed, and most of it is, like I said, right. Most yeah. most most of the most important thresholds are indexed. Not in all provinces, though. Like Nova Scotia, BI doesn't index at all, right? Ontario doesn't index its top two thresholds. So, I mean, there's lots of non-indexation that we found that we we were kind of surprised about, but. I mean, a lot of uh, of the thresholds are indexed. Well,
1: another g- example, getting back to the study here, and, and this is, is one where it's almost then like, uh, you know, a tax increase or increasing the tax burden of working parents with children. So the child care expense deduction. Talk about that.
4: Yeah, this one is another one that I... We, we chose to talk about it in the op-ed because it, it's it, it's really stark. It's a stark example. Like the, the max, there's a maximum dollar limit for the child care expense deduction. Um, it's now $8,000. Um, in uh, in 25 years ago, it was $7,000. So it, it, it since since 25 years ago, it it has increased by $1,000. But really. If it would have if, if, if it would have risen with inflation, it would be twelve thousand dollars for each child under seven now the limit the maximum you could so not not eight thousand but twelve thousand dollars and the twelve thousand dollars is actually closer to the real cost of child child care $8000 for a toddler um, in a child care center will not will not cover it so you know like so by not increasing the the maximum deduction for child care to inflation to the real costs for parents well they, the government is effectively raising the tax burden on the working parents like it, right. it's 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 a hidden way to do it it's raising taxes by stealth
1: well, and that's just it, right? So if the government accepts the premise that, you know, tax brackets would need to be adjusted to reflect inflation, it's hard to understand why they don't apply that, that same logic elsewhere, what their argument would be for not fixing these other areas.
4: Exactly. This is, this is, uh, this is, uh, we don't really have the answer to that question. Like, like why, why is the childcare expense reduction um, not indexed? Maybe because it was uh uh, started in 1972, and that's a long time ago. Like, uh, why? Like, I, I don't know. Maybe because it's not a credit. Like most non-refundable credits are indexed. I don't know why, but it's not right. And and there, there there's more. Like there's the small supplier threshold for charging the GST. It's it's still thirty thousand dollar and really if it what would have been indexed to inflation now like being a small business would be earning more than fifty five thousand dollars not thirty thousand so more and more people now need need to collect the gsd if they like offer services privately right or if it's a just a small business part-time um and you know and if they want to comply they need to um charge the gsd but they wouldn't if if the the, the threshold w- would have been raised with inflation, uh, and, and there's so many there, there's so many different examples like that that we don't really think about, it's, it, it, because you know like it, they're not part of our day-to-day tax filing kind of thing, but they're important.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, for sure. Well, much more at cdhow dot org and uh, this op-ed it's up today at uh, theglobeandmail.com. dot com. Alex, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. I Appreciate this.
4: Yeah, my pleasure. All the best. Bye. Take
1: care. AI technology has really been growing by leaps and bounds, and not just in recent years, but it almost just feels like over even the last year or two, like we're kind of in the midst of this explosion in AI technology. What does it all mean? You know, there are a lot of kind of big picture conversations about what this could mean down the road, what kind of potential threats AI could, could pose or what sort of concerns it raises, maybe threats to to, to jobs or industries, all of these kinds of things. But at the moment, it seems like we're just kind of caught up in in the here and now. Like AI, or at least our understanding of what AI is at the moment, you know, tends to to mean things like chat GPT or or some of the prompts where you can use AI to create images. Things that are basically kind of like playthings at the moment. Like it's... It's certainly not – there's a disconnect, maybe you could say, between how we're using, how we perceive AI at the moment, and maybe some of these bigger picture issues about the impact it's going to have in the years ahead. At least that's the finding of a new study out from the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research called Incautiously Optimistic. It suggests that Canadians are so caught up playing with new AI tools, they aren't considering the full scope of their risks and opportunities. So there's two sides to that. So they've released the, the study in conjunction with the release of a new online course called Destination AI, which is meant to raise uh, AI literacy uh, amongst the public. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Alyssa Strom is Executive Director of the Pan-Canadian AI Strategy with the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Alyssa, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So what, what is the, you know, the, the importance of the moment we're at right now in terms of where the technology's at and where things are going and, and you know, why you felt it was important to release this study and, and also release this new tool?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right that um, with the advent of new approaches like ChatGPT and other generative tools that create images, or we're starting to get to, you know, uh, audio and video into the future as well, too. We found that um, for the first time really in history, AI tools are now at the fingertips of the general public, and people have access to uh, start to... Play with these tools and learn from them and start to use them and so in particularly right now is a great time to also get people to start to think really critically about what the opportunities are uh, with respect to these tools how can they be used uh, around broader uh, questions to do with societal benefits and societal impact but then also understanding uh, what the limitations of them are as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Talk about this study and how you go about measuring kind of Canadians' level of knowledge about all of this, because I would imagine it, it would vary or, or you know, people are using AI in different ways or just perhaps even completely disengaged from all of this altogether. So how do you go about measuring that?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, it's a really, really hard thing to do, and there are you know different methodologies that people have used over the years to understand uh, sentiment and understanding and literacy about all kinds of tools and technologies. In this study, in particular, we took a social media listening approach, and so that means uh, using again pretty advanced software and uh, data science expertise. Uh, we looked at what Canadians were talking about online, so looking at online social media platforms particularly looking at Twitter, but also looking at what Canadians were searching around AI when they were using Google as a as a search tool. So those were the two primary platforms that we used. And then again, as I said, using actually pretty sophisticated uh, data science, data analytics techniques, trying to understand the sentiment, what was really the meaning and the feeling behind what Canadians were talking about. Was it it positive? Was it negative? When they're looking at terms like jobs, were they looking at uh, the positive impact of jobs or perhaps the the threat or the negative impact?
1: Right. And what can we surmise from all of that then?
0: Yeah, I think what was really surprising to me was that we found that overall, Canadians were feeling really, really positive and excited about AI. And and that's great because I'm also uh, optimistic about AI and, you know, the overall uh, benefit that it's going to bring to society. But it sort of felt like when we did the analysis that there was um, a lack of that critical thinking, thinking about what are the risks and what are some of the um, limitations of this technology. It's not, you know, a magic tool in a box that can solve all the world's problems but in fact there are real challenges associated with it that we need people to be aware of right so engagement
1: right now the study refers to the term uh, shiny object syndrome which you know i think there's a lot to that there's kind of this fascination or curiosity with things like chat gpt and people want to sort of experience that or play around with that so what does that tell us right now about our relationship or how we're thinking about ai
0: Yeah, I think what it tells us is that, um, you know, it's great that people are really willing to experiment and to try it and get a feel for it themselves, but I think that what Canadians are getting by sort of limiting themselves to these new tools is, um, you know, Uh, a lack of understanding of the full perspective of where ai can and could be uh, applied into our daily lives and into society so for instance some of the really important applications of ai include uh, the opportunity to apply it to our healthcare systems Mm -hmm. thinking about how can we improve efficiencies in our healthcare systems how can we deliver better care for canadians Uh, thinking about how can we apply it to transportation making transportation uh, more efficient, safer for Canadians, the transportation of uh, goods across the country. how can we use AI to optimize those um, those functions, and then thinking about, for instance, the application of AI around questions to do with the environment as well too another pressing uh, issue facing society so it 's those those broader, important societal applications that I think are sort of being lost in uh, these shiny object approaches as we're, we're playing with the new tools that are coming forward.
1: Right, and, and I do wonder. You know, part of it might be that we just don't know what's coming. We don't know what that future is going to look like, and so we're, we're almost kind of in a, in a passive sort of waiting mode to say, "Okay, here's you know what you've thrown at us now with Chad GPT, and we'll play around with that, and then we'll just wait and see what else is coming." Is is? I mean, are Canadians too passive then in that sense? Yeah.
0: Well, perhaps, and and that's really why we wanted to launch the course. So uh, Destination AI, and uh, our, your listeners can find it at cifar.ca slash destinationai. That's c i c-a slash destinationai. Um, it's really an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into the technology and understand not only uh, what it's capable of, but also what its limitations are, and then these broader applications, and and to get some actual real examples of how and when and where AI is already being used um, in our everyday lives and in society.
1: Right. And maybe it's not just, you know, lack of awareness, but there are also, you know, some real concerns, or maybe even real fears about AI. And you talk about, you know, I think it's important, as you did, to point out, you know, where there's, you know, some potential positive impacts. But You know, there's some real doomsday scenarios even associated with uh, AI or some perceptions that we have that have maybe been shaped by, you know, science fiction and, and Hollywood over the years. So is it also about maybe debunking or countering some of those myths?
0: Absolutely. Uh, It's true that, um, you know, we can imagine futures where AI really does represent a risk to society, but I think that future is a long way off. And so really understanding, um, you know, that right now it is a tool that's fairly limited in its power and its capability. Uh, AI is really just, you know, a, a software tool that can be used to analyze a very very large body of data in a way that humans are not able to do and so it's really limited in the the modality and the type of questions that it can ask right now we're nowhere near uh, a sort of terminator scenario and so it's really important for people to get a better understanding and a grasp of you know where we stand right now um, and to think about those those positive applications rather than worrying about um, that that future scenario.
1: Right. And I wonder, too, I mean, it almost feels like it's similar, I think, to the situation that our elected officials are in where we, we've got policymakers who are kind of tasked with shaping policy around this. But it feels like we're all a few steps behind the experts and those in the field. And just when we kind of catch up and we're educating ourselves on where things are at, you know, the technology has already raced ahead. So it feels like we're per- perpetually trying to to keep up with all of that.
0: It's absolutely true. It's a field that's moving very, very quickly. Um, And there, you know, there are a lot of conversations either online or, you know, through public engagement forums. Um, But I think that we need to have more inclusion of of voices from Canadians all across the country into this conversation. And that's another reason why uh, increasing our understanding and our literacy of AI is so important. The more we understand about the, you know, the opportunities, the limitations of, of this technology, the more we can be all of us involved in these conversations and in order to inform good policy and good decisions by our government we actually need to hear from many many different perspectives so it, it would be great if people could also have both have opportunities but also seize those opportunities to be part of the conversation
1: absolutely well much more on all of this as mentioned uh, cifar.ca c-i-f-a-r.ca the canadian institute for advanced research destination ai is that new online tool that's available. Uh, Alyssa, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
0: Thanks for having me, Rob.
1: All the best. Take care. Uh, That's Alyssa Strom, uh, Pan-Canadian AI Strategy Executive Director with the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. So this is the free tool they made available uh, for Canadians who feel maybe they want to learn a little bit more to better understand what it is we're talking about when it comes to artificial intelligence. So it was a, a dual announcement here. So the release of that new tool, but also this study, incautiously optimistic. And where Canadians appear to be at in terms of their interest or engagement with artificial intelligence, and we're sort of using it for now, almost like a, a plaything, or we're in play mode. Because that's kind of what's been presented to us. You know, these tools that you can play around with, things like chat GPT. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.